Pearls podcast. It is great to be with you today. Today we are continuing on and finishing our series through the letter of 1 Peter. Again, Peter, the Apostle Peter, wrote this letter in probably about 64 AD from Rome, where he was shortly thereafter, maybe a couple of years thereafter, he was crucified probably in the arena, in the Colosseum, and also legend has it upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord and Savior Jesus. He didn't consider himself worthy to die like Jesus. So he wrote this letter a few years before his death, and he wrote a follow-up letter, Second Peter, which maybe we'll make it to a podcast series later this fall. I'm not sure. But He's writing to people who are living in northern Turkey. These people are in the outskirts of the Roman Empire, and the the brutality and the persecution of the Roman Empire is beginning to amp up in Rome. Peter knows that it's going to spread to the outskirts, and he is writing to the people for encouragement through suffering, perseverance through suffering. The whole letter has a very strong theme that you will suffer for Christ's sake. It's not a question of if you suffer, it is a question of when you suffer and how you suffer, but you certainly will suffer. And because we saw Christ suffer, especially Peter coming as an eyewitness to the sufferings of Jesus, he is saying that we can have community, communion, intimacy with Jesus in our suffering because Jesus himself suffered and also in Jesus' suffering he set us an example so we can learn how to suffer. So we learn how to suffer from Jesus and we grow in intimacy with Jesus as we suffer for his sake and on the other side of the suffering glory is guaranteed and that promise gives us strength and perseverance and endurance through our trials on earth. As he comes to chapter 5, he has a few wrapping up words of advice about, about how to lead the church, about how to care for the church, and of course the church being these scattered groups of people in northern Turkey, many of whom, many of whom as we've talked about, are probably living in hiding, kind of living in the earthen caves and tunnels that this area provides in its landscape, and so giving them encouragement for these days that they're facing. All right, so as he begins chapter five, he says, to the elders among you, okay, let's pause right there. Who are the elders among them? Well, we don't know if they are gathered into like a formal church setting, whoever is leading their Christian fellowship. So the leaders of their Christian fellowship would be considered their elders, those who have had a spiritual maturity growth that goes beyond others in their community. And so then they can be spiritual leaders. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. So he's going to give them an appeal and he's letting them know, I am with you. I am an elder alongside of you. I'm also a witness of Jesus' suffering. I will also share in glory with you. And I want to give you an appeal. This is my command to you in your leadership role. So verse two, he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. 
watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So he's giving them these instructions about how to be a shepherd. And this is really cool for a number of reasons. For one thing, Peter must be going back in his mind. He just must be. I've mentioned this before to that time on the beach in John chapter 21 on the on the sea on the shore of the Sea of Galilee uh, when Jesus offers him restoration and Jesus pulls him aside or perhaps they're sitting right there at breakfast with the others and Jesus asks Peter three times Simon do you love me and Simon Peter says yes you know that I love you and then Jesus says I want to get it right. So the first time he says, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So Jesus gives Peter this very beautiful instruction of shepherding, care for my, care for my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. He gives them these very beautiful instructions about shepherding. And now as Peter is giving instructions to the elders in this Christian fellowship, he is telling them to be shepherds over God's flock. And he's telling them, watch over them, be eager to serve them, take care of those who are entrusted to you, be examples to them. Those are the things that he wants them to do. And I love he that he says, watch over them, not because you must, but because you are willing. When Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He was making it clear that Peter had a choice. You don't have to serve me, Peter. You can say no. You can walk away. Don't serve my lambs, feed my sheep, take care of my lambs because I'm forcing you to. I'm not forcing you to. I'm asking you, do you love me? Will you feed my sheep? And so Peter says, don't do it because you have to, but because you're willing to do it as God wants you to be. Another cool thing about this passage is that uh, Peter is probably also beckoning back, way back, to Ezekiel chapter 34. Remember, uh, the Jewish writers of the New Testament knew the Old Testament in and out, and it was quick to their tongue, quick to their pen to quote and point us back to the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament. And so it's very likely that he is also beckoning us back to Ezekiel 34, which is a fairly famous passage about the shepherds of Israel when Ezekiel was prophesying about how the shepherds of Israel were not doing their job and God is upset that they were harming the people and not caring for the people. And so I'm going to read to you a little bit from um, Ezekiel 34, and you will see the connection with what Ezekiel is saying that the shepherds of Israel were doing 
compared to what Peter is telling his shepherds, the shepherds of this Christian fellowship, how he is teaching them to live and act. There are definite parallels. But first, let's ask about, like, wait, when this is talking about the shepherds of Israel, who is it talking about? It is not talking about literal shepherds who have sheep. It is talking about the kings and probably the priests of Israel who were not caring for the people of Israel. So in Ezekiel 34, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, and you clothe yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak, or healed the sick, or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays, or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched for them or looked for them. And then later on, God says through Ezekiel, he says, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look for them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel in the ravines and the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. And the mountain heights of Israel will be, will be their grazing land. They will lie down in good grazing land, and they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep, and I will lie them down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and the strengthened and strengthen the weak. So God is saying, I myself will shepherd my people, which of course he does, through the chief shepherd, Jesus. And interestingly, in 1 Peter chapter 5, where we were reading, Peter goes directly to that chief shepherd. So Peter just got done telling them all the ways they should shepherd and all the ways that they should not shepherd. And then, sorry, I flipped my pages and now I'm flipping back. So, and then after he tells them the ways to shepherd their flock, then he says in verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, which matches exactly how God was just saying in Ezekiel, I will come and shepherd my people. Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And of course, that is talking about at the return of Christ or for those who die in advance of the return of Christ, when the chief shepherd appears to them individually on the day that they leave earth, they will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So be shepherds of the flock. Now, I want to talk to all of us who are not pastors, because if we translate this to today, in, our, in today's time, so when Peter wrote it, he was talking to the leaders of this Christian fellowship in northern Turkey and probably many different Christian fellowships where this letter traveled. This was a traveling letter. So many different leaders of Christian fellowships, they would be the shepherds, the elders of the people. For those of us who are now, 2,000 years later, 
I might read this and I might think, well, I don't have a flock. <laughs> I'm not a pastor. Is this only talking to pastors? And I would say, absolutely no. <laughs> absolutely not. Who is the flock that God has told you to care for? All of us, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a sheep underneath the chief shepherd. If you belong to a church, which you should, if you're a Christian, you should be in a Christian fellowship that is biblical. You also have a shepherd in your pastor or pastors. And you're also, so you're a sheep, but you're also shepherding someone. Who are you shepherding? All of us are called to be sheep and all of us are called to shepherd somebody. Who are you shepherding? And I would say if you think that you are shepherding nobody, that means that you are not using the platform, whatever platform God has given you to to draw people closer to Jesus, to bring people to the heart of Jesus, to care for the weak around you, to care for the hurt around you, to care for the downtrodden around you, then you're not using your platform if you really don't think you have sheep that you are caring for. But I think you do, and you might just have not paused to really think about it this way. So who are you shepherding? Who is your flock? So if you are a parent, first and foremost, your flock is your children. My flock is my four kids. My, they are my first and primary first flock. They're the ones that I take care of, not because I have to, but because I'm willing to and because I love doing it. Not for any dishonest gain, but being eager to serve them. Not lording it over them like, I am your master and you must obey me, but leading by example, leading them towards the love of Jesus every single day. And then there's other flocks as well. Uh, the next step of my flock is my kids' friends, the kids who are at my house a lot. They are my flock. My job is to point them to Jesus, to show them love and compassion and care and uh, a family that cares for each other and can bring them into that fellowship and then show them that we love them too and that they are welcome at our table, that they are welcome at our house, that uh, in this house they will experience genuine authenticity real life just honest open people who fall and stumble and then keep coming back to jesus that is what they will hopefully see in our house they are part of my flock and then after that the next part of my flock would be my neighborhood the groups that i get to teach at church i teach sixth grade confirmation i teach adult sunday school i do some women's bible study teaching so they would be part of my flock and then i serve in our public schools as a substitute teacher those kids are my flock they are in my care i want to point them to jesus i want to serve them well and always be shepherding their hearts towards jesus in the capacity that i am given access to do so The challenge is to realize that we are all shepherds and we're all sheep as followers of Jesus and to make sure we are being a sheep that is letting Jesus shepherd us. Psalm 23, that we are 
walking with him through the valleys of darkness, that we are lying down in the green pastures when he tells us it's time to rest, that we are celebrating the banquet he lays before us in the presence of our enemies, that we have the confidence that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, letting him restore our souls, making sure that we are being sheep like Psalm 23 teaches us to be with a shepherd who is good and takes care of us. And then also realizing that we are shepherds and we do have a flock and are we caring for them? Are we loving them? Are we putting their needs ahead of ours? Are we serving them well? And ultimately, are we pointing them to Jesus who is the chief shepherd? Are we shepherding their hearts in such a way that they can see and know the chief shepherd? That is the aim of anybody in any level of leadership in the Christian church, in the Christian fellowship, any level of leadership. Whatever level of leadership that is for you, this is your aim. And then he, he goes ahead and tells us our next aim as well. For those of you who are younger, okay, who's younger? Everybody. <laughs> Almost everybody is younger than somebody. And even if it's not by age, it's not in the in Christian fellowship and in any type of leadership setting, it's not always about age. It's about maturity and growth on whatever track we're looking at. So the track that we're looking at in the Christian fellowship is sanctification, becoming like Jesus, spiritual maturity, those who have been walking with Jesus longer and more closely, who have gained more intimacy with Jesus. Those would be the elders, and the younger is everybody else. Everybody who is looking up to the elders as leaders in their spiritual walk. So if you are a younger, which you certainly are, unless you are about 100 years old and have been walking with Jesus the whole time, which there are those out there, like my grandpa Gordon, who died when he was 93, by the end of his life, there wouldn't be very many people that I would say are an elder to him. And I don't just mean by age, I also mean by spiritual maturity. I would have been hard-pressed to find another human that could be a leader to my grandpa Gordon when he was walking with Jesus for 93 years because he walked close with Jesus, very closely. So there are people out there who are no longer a younger, but most of us are still a younger, whether it means by actual age or by spiritual maturity. We are elders to some and we are youngers to some. We are shepherds to some and we are sheep to some. We are all sheep to Jesus. I hope this makes sense. So what it says, in the same way, I'm in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. So that was quoting from Proverbs 11.31. So there again, he just lays it out there, that submit yourselves to those who are shepherding you, and make sure that you are shepherding well those that are underneath your care. But whatever your role, whether you're a sheep or a shepherd in your role, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So as you're shepherding, do so in humility. As you're being a sheep, do so in humility. 
Whatever role you're taking in a particular relationship, it needs to be threaded through and through with humility. In verse 6, Peter says, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Verse 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. This is another place where I wonder if Peter is thinking back to that hillside with Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, 5, 6, 7. Because there's been a number of times in this letter where he says something that is so reminiscent of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I just wonder if he goes back there frequently in his mind and in his heart. So he's saying, cast all your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. And in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear. Um, And then he goes on and talks about how who by worrying can add a single day to his life. And then he talks about the flowers, how they're clothed in beauty, and they did not toil or spin for that. And the birds of the air have enough food to eat because the Father in heaven feeds them. And so I wonder if Peter is like remembering back to that when he says, cast all your anxiety on him. Cast it all on him because he cares for you. He will clothe you and he will feed you. Cast your anxiety on him. Also, I think it's cool. We just have to remember Peter's a fisherman and he's talking here about casting. And when a fisherman is casting his line, like he's throwing it way out there into the sea way out there into the sea. So when you are casting your anxiety, you are not holding it close. (laughs) You're not dangling it by your side like you might dangle your purse or your car keys. You are casting it. You're throwing it far out into the sea because God cares for you. And then in verse 8, Peter says the most interesting thing, again, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Now, if you're tracking along with this podcast, you might be like, I think he has said that before. Yes, indeed, he has. This is the third time in this short letter that he has used the exact same phrase, be alert and of sober mind. So he used that phrase in chapter 1, verse 13. There he said, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So let's go and let's go ahead and review first of all what these words mean. Alert means ready. You are ready at any given moment for whatever God brings your way, if it's the return of Christ or if it's somebody new to shepherd or if it's persecution actually primarily probably in this letter, if it's persecution, be alert, be ready, know that things are coming, that we don't get forewarning very often, and that things are going to change constantly. Be alert, be on your toes. But at the same time, interestingly, the word he pairs with it is to be fully sober. And earlier, like when I did the podcast on chapter one, I was explaining that I had to look up that word because the way that we use sober pretty much just means not drunk, right? Like our mind doesn't is not intoxicated with any alcohol. That's what sober means generally to most of us. 
So I had to look it up because I knew that was not what Peter meant. And so it means calm, dignified, and unhurried, marked by a sedate or earnestly thoughtful character, unhurried and calm. And I just think that's really interesting that alert and sober are being matched together in Peter's letter three times. So alert, be ready, be on your toes, be prepared, and yet at the same time, be unhurried, calm, dignified, earnestly thoughtful. Those are very different mindsets, but Peter puts them together like your mindset is both. Be unhurried and calm, yet ready for action at any given moment. That is the call that Peter has for us. So the first time he uses it is with your mind fully alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So we are alert and ready for the return of Christ at any moment, and yet we are sober, not hurried, not like missing what God has for us in the meantime, because God has work for us in the meantime. And if we just like hide away, ready for the return of Christ, but not doing anything while we're waiting, that then we miss the mark. That's, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. So we want to be fully sober, unhurried, calm, dignified, and alert that the return of Christ could happen at any moment. Okay, and then verse 7 of chapter 4 says it this way. It says, The end of all things is near, again pointing us to the return of Christ. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So be ready for anything, be ready for action, and of sober mind, unhurried, calm, earnestly thinking. Why? So that you can pray. Because if you are just in a hurry and alert, like you're on watch, you are ready to pounce, then you're probably not pausing your heart, calming your heart, and praying. But on the other hand, if you are so sober-minded that you're just like, Eh, I don't know, someday Jesus might come back, someday more people will love him, someday those people around me that I care about will come to know the truth and the grace of God, you know, it'll happen sometime. Well, if that's our attitude, like, that would be a sober attitude, but not alert. (laughs) Like, we have to be alert and be like, we need to be ready at any time. The end of my life could happen today. It could happen in the next minute. I need to be ready. I need to know the Lord Jesus. I want my family to know the Lord Jesus. I want my neighborhood to know him. I want my life to point to him all the time. I need to be alert for that to happen, like aware of what's going on around me and ready for God to bring something into my life that needs a reaction from me, a reaction in love and truth and grace. I need to be ready with my eyes open, and yet I need to also be pairing that with a calm, unhurried mindset so that I can stay focused and pray for those around me like don't just run around with a chicken like a chicken with my head cut off right I don't want to run around like a chicken with my head cut off I want to be calm dignified prayerful all right and then the last time he says it is in um, what I just read in chapter 5 verse 8 
And the way he says it this time is be alert and of sober mind. And here's why. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. All right. So this time, the reason we are going to be alert, ready for anything at any time, and of sober mind, like not going crazy, is because we need to be aware. We need to take into consideration the things happening around us. We need to... Uh, not just get on a frenzy about what everybody else is getting on a frenzy about, but we need to like take stock of things, understand what's going on in the world, realizing that we have a very real enemy who really is looking to devour Christ followers, rip us apart, rip us from each other, rip us from our Christian fellowship, tear apart our marriages, tear apart our kids and our families, He's a real enemy who really wants to destroy Christ followers. So we need to be ready when we notice his attacks. But we also can't be frantic about it. There's no need to be frantic about it because the one who is in us is stronger than the one who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. That is from 1 John. And so we don't need to be afraid that there's this enemy, the devil, prowling around like a lion, but we need to be aware that he is around and looking to devour us. And then verse 9 tells us, resist him. When you notice his attacks, resist it. Now here's the deal. We would not be given the instruction to resist the devil if we weren't strong enough through the Holy Spirit to resist the devil. But we are, in fact, strong enough through the power of the Holy Spirit to resist the devil. And that's why verse 9 says, resist him. Because you can. The Holy Spirit in you is stronger than the enemy coming against you. So you can resist the devil. But if you are not alert and if your mind isn't calm and dignified and unfrantic, you might not be able to stand firm to resist him. And if you're not alert, you might not even be aware of his attacks. So we need to be aware. And I think one of the most important pieces of being aware of the devil's attacks is asking Jesus where the devil is attacking you. Just ask him, Jesus, where where is the attack coming from? You can usually feel if you're under attack. Like you feel like you can't get out of bed or you feel like there is just like this antagonistic spirit running through your family. Nobody's getting along. Everybody's upset. Uh, or you might feel like one thing after another is just sucking the joy out of your life. And so you can start to feel like, okay, things are not right. Something is Something's amiss here. And as you start to feel that way, ask Jesus, Jesus, where is the devil attacking? And then resist him. Say, okay, if it's like, like I said, the antagonistic spirit that, that is running through your family, making everybody mad, unhappy with each other, um, mean, tearing each other down. If that's what's going on and you're like, and if Jesus says it's a, a spirit of antagonism going through your family, then resist that. Say in the mighty name of Jesus, I resist this spirit of antagonism. Go away. You are not allowed here. 
I cover our family in the blood of Jesus. I command you, any any spirits coming against us, I command you to get out, go away in the mighty name of Jesus. You are not allowed here. So just command, command the devil to back down. You can do that. Jesus did it all the time in the gospel accounts. When he was delivering demons out of people, they are afraid of him. They have to obey the name of Jesus. They have to. So you can have the power to resist. You do have the power to resist through through the Holy Spirit and the name of Jesus. So resist the devil. And then he goes on and he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. Don't don't doubt. Like y- you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You are stronger than the devil. Stand firm. And then he says he gives us encouragement. One of the ways we can stand firm is knowing that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So you can stand firm because you are not alone. There is camaraderie in the body of Christ. There is unity in suffering. We are all going through this temptation and this devouring of the devil. And it's different in different places around the world. Like in various places around the world right now, people are being literally persecuted unto death for their faith in Christ. That is not my situation. But when my kids go to public school in a month, they will face persecution of many different kinds. And our family undergoes persecution of many different kinds, namely from the devil. Like the devil is against us because we love Jesus, because we know Jesus. And so we do go through this suffering, but there can be unity knowing that throughout the world, all believers in Jesus are going through this. And like we already heard about in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the crown of glory. I think that in Paul's last letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy, when Paul talks about receiving his crown, I'm just going to, I'm just jumping over there to look. He calls it, when he says he has finished the race, he has fought the good fight, he has kept the faith, he calls it the crown of righteousness. In other places, it's called the crown of life. So when the chief shepherd appears, he brings crowns with him for us. The crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory. I think it's one crown, but it has all these meanings, all these representations. And that can carry us through the suffering. The promise of being crowned by King Jesus himself, that can carry us through the suffering. Okay, verse 10, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So I'm not sure when he's saying that after you've suffered for a little while, God will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I'm not sure, and I don't know if Peter knew, even while he was penning the words, uh, does he mean in in eternity? After we've suffered a little while in eternity, God will make us strong, firm, and steadfast? 
Or does he mean on earth you'll, you'll go through periods of suffering for a little while and then strength and steadfastness. And then the valley will sink again into a period of suffering and then God will bring you through it to another time of strength and steadfastness. I think it's both. I think both during our earthly sojourn, we will have suffering for a little while followed by periods of strength. Suffering for a time, followed by periods of strength. And that cycle will go on until the day we leave earth. And then, of course, ultimately in eternity, God will restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And then he wraps up with verse 11 and says, To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. All right, now this brings us to the final words of Peter, just like his salutation at the end of the letter. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Stand fast in the true grace of God. Also, we get the um, understanding there that he is writing with Silas. Silas is probably penning it for him. And now at these last few verses, it's possible that Peter takes the pen and signs it at the end with these last final words. But Silas also was with Paul. He wrote down a couple of Paul's letters as well. And he was with Paul uh, through Paul's second missionary journey after Paul and Barnabas split ways. Paul took Silas with him. So Silas has done many travelings with Paul. And now whether he's traveling with Peter at this time or just with him in Rome and writing his letter for him, I'm not sure, but that would be the same Silas almost for sure. And then um, in verse 13, Peter writes this really cryptic, hard-to-understand sentence. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Okay, so she who is in Babylon. Babylon is um, like a code name amongst the Christians for Rome. Not wanting to stir up any more anger than necessary with the Roman Empire. And because the Old Testament significance of Babylon capturing the people of God, capturing Judah, and, and taking Judah into captivity and the people had to live under the captivity of Babylon, and now the people of Israel are under Roman oppression. So that that's, that uh, similarity between Babylon and the oppression of Rome, and then writing in code. So Babylon means Rome. So she who is in Babylon, who is that? That's the church. The church, the bride of Christ, she who is in Rome, chosen with you, like because... The Bible says that those who are in Christ were chosen by Christ. So chosen together with you sends her greetings. So the Christian fellowship in Rome is sending their greetings to those in northern Turkey. And then he says, so does my son Mark. So I had to look up a little bit about the relationship between Peter and Mark. I've actually read that, you know, Mark was young, probably too young to be a disciple. He was not one of the 12 disciples, but he did write one of the gospel accounts, the gospel according to Mark. And I have read that he likely gleaned his information primarily from Peter. I wasn't sure about that when I read that. I was like, huh, I wonder why we know that. But here, Peter says, so does my son Mark. So clearly, 
uh, Mark and Peter are very close. Mark is not literally the son of Peter, but he is a son in like in Christ, in the body of Christ. Peter sees Mark as a son. And one thing that's really interesting, so then I wanted to go back into the book of Acts and just kind of figure out more about the relationship, anything I can find between Peter and Mark in the book of Acts. And one thing I found is in Acts chapter 12, when Peter is in prison in Jerusalem and then is miraculously freed by an angel from prison, the house that he goes to is, it says, the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And this is John Mark. The one who wrote the gospel account is John Mark. It's all the same person. So he goes to Mary's house, and Mary is the mother of John Mark. That is where the whole church was gathered while Peter was in prison in Acts chapter 12. And it says they were earnestly praying for him, and they were gathered at Mary and John Mark's house. So that's part of the relationship we see there. So I think it started pretty young when when Mark was young. I mean, their, their close-knit relationship between Peter and Mark must have started really young. And... Also, we know in um, Colossians, when Peter, Paul writes Colossians about 61-ish, 60 to 61 AD, and he does mention in Colossians, at the end of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, he mentions that Mark is with him as well, that Mark has been there. So Mark is not in prison with Paul, but he's in Rome, and it seems that he's he visits often both Peter and Paul while Paul and Peter are in Rome. Peter, we don't think, is in prison. Paul was in prison from 60 to 62 AD. So it seems that Mark visited both of them and had Christian fellowship with them and ministered to their needs probably as well. And if he was hanging out a lot with Peter, he was probably gleaning information that then he was able to use in the writing of the gospel account. So very interesting. All right, so Peter wraps up his letter with verse 14. He says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I think that's a beautiful and rather amazing way of wrapping up this letter that has so much about suffering in it and about the glory to come. The word glory is used many times throughout the letter. Peter keeps pointing the people to the glory to come. But suffering appears 18 times. The word suffering, suffered, suffers in any one of those forms, it's used 18 times. Seven of those 18 times are directly referencing the suffering of Jesus that Jesus went through the suffering, that Peter's an eyewitness to the suffering of Jesus, that because Christ suffered for you, he left you an example, things like that. So seven of the 18 times are specifically referring to Jesus's own suffering. And then the rest of those 18 times, which would be 11, 11 times throughout this little short letter, Peter is telling them, you're going to suffer in your sufferings, persevere through your sufferings, other people are suffering with you. After your suffering will come the glory. Like 11 times he talks about, he mentions suffering for the people. Like you are going to suffer. So at the end of this book that is so focused, not 
just on the suffering, but even more importantly, on the glory that is to come beyond the suffering, he ends his letter by saying peace to all of you who are in Christ. Whether or not you suffer is not an indicator of knowing the peace of Christ. In the midst of suffering is when you might know the peace of Christ most beautifully, most intimately, because it's when you're leaning into his peace the most. You're leaning into the peace of God the most when you are going through suffering in your life. So peace and suffering are not uh, like oil and water. Oil and water don't mix, and we might think that peace and suffering are like that, but they're not. They go together beautifully. So in the midst of suffering, may we know the incredible peace of the Lord Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I do not give you peace as the world gives. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I can't think of a better way to end a letter or a podcast. So peace to you who are in Christ Jesus. I just do want to say one more thing. I will be taking a couple weeks off as we go on vacation and as I prepare for the next podcast series. And then the week of August 15th, sometime during that week, I will be beginning a new podcast series about sending our kids back to public school and how we can prepare them and their hearts and us for that transition and for the opportunities that lay ahead of us to bring people into relationship with Jesus through our public school system. So I will look forward to talking to you about that. I hope you have a great day and a great beginning of August. Bye.